You guys can go ahead and have a seat. All right. Well, it's good to be back in the pulpit again this Sunday. Um, the summer's been pretty unique for me where I've actually, you know, had other really good, godly, gifted guys be able to step in here like Harry and Justin. We had Tim. And before, every time I stepped out of the pulpit for a few weeks, every time I got back in, I would preach for like 50 minutes, which my goal is 35, just so you know. I, I have an explicit goal in mind, and that's for 35. Have I hit that? No. At least not in the last few months. Am I going to hit it today? I don't know. I will try. But, but here, here's the most important thing. We get to resume our study in the book of Genesis. Right, that very first book of the Bible. Now, in case you were not with us, we started this study actually back in January, where we had the opportunity to march through just the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. And so today, we're going to be picking it up in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, and just going through verse 9. Now, if you're using one of those uh, black pew Bibles that are around in front of you, that will be on page 8. Page 8, if you're using one of those black Genesis scripture journals, I don't know what page that is. Two, three, I'm not sure. All right. Thank you. Now, because it has been several months since we've been in the book of Genesis, I do want to highlight one critical component when we approach um, one of these foundational Old Testament books. Okay? And is that we study Genesis from a Christian lens. And what I mean by that is you will notice today in really every sermon in this series, when we look at Genesis, we're looking at it in a redemptive historical grammatical lens. Meaning that not only are we trying to understand what does the text say, right, that that historical grammatical understanding of the Bible, but also redemptive, meaning how does this book or the words it contains actually fit into the whole redemptive history of God throughout all time? So not only are we going to look at what the text says, but we're going to look at what does this text in Genesis actually point to? Is there an ultimate fulfillment of what we see in Genesis 12? And according to the words of Jesus himself, he said, all of scripture is about me. So then, in order to actually rightly understand Genesis, we have to look and say, how is this pointing to Jesus? How is this pointing to his person and work? How is this fulfilled in him? How is this highlighting him in some way? That's a Christian way of understanding Genesis. And I believe in this chapter specifically, Genesis chapter 12, and there's going to be quite a few, the New Testament has a lot to say about Genesis 12. has a lot to say. And so we need to look at the words of the New Testament and let that be a spotlight of clarification as we look back. So here's the big idea. Genesis then matters to us as Christians. It's not just an Old Testament book about some family long ago or some place long ago or some land long ago that doesn't have any bearing on us today, but rather we look at it from a Christian lens, saying, how does that story connect to our story or God's story, the story of God and his relationship with humanity? That's what we're going to be looking at. And as I mentioned, even though that the words spoken to Abram today were probably written about 4,000 years ago, they have great bearing, I think, on us today. 
right here, right now. Because they're going to lead us to Christ. Now, since it has been a few months, and if you're like me, I'm a forgetful person. Um, as, as one of our leaders says, if I've slept since then, I've probably forgotten it, which I think is true. So let me just give a quick recap of Genesis 1 through 11. So in the words of Jesus, Genesis was authored by Moses. Moses was the author, the attributed author, of the first five books of the Bible, known as the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch. Now, likely, when Moses actually recorded Genesis, along with those other books, he was writing during a time period when the nation of Israel had just been uh, freed, led by God, out of bondage from Egypt, and are in this wilderness on their way to what's known as the Promised Land. So they're in this in-between period. They've been freed from the bondage of slavery of Egypt, but yet they have not arrived at the Promised Land that awaits them. And so Moses is writing to those people, people that have been enslaved and their families have been enslaved by these Egyptian rulers for over 400 years. And I, and I bring that up because it really affects the way that we read the text. Because Moses, like any author, has an intent when you write, especially when you consider who was the original audience. Why was Moses recording what he's recording here in Genesis? Well, if you recall back in Genesis 1, why did Moses record the creation of the world? Because likely, all the Israelites have ever known is what they were taught by their Egyptian owners. And that the world was just made up of and created by a whole bunch of different little G-gods that you had to appease and you had to do these things to not make them mad or make them happy with you. So where does Moses begin? He begins with, no, there's one true God who has created the world. One true God has created everything, in fact. The whole world, the land, the animals, the sea... And at the pinnacle of his creation, what did he create? Humanity. Our first parents, Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, we are told that they are made in the image of God. That they were a special creation. That they had this image of God that was not pointed to basically any other creation. And so humanity had this unique privilege, this unique honor that they were able to point to the glory of God unlike any other creation could. So the world began with perfection. God was their king. And nothing but ultimate satisfaction awaited them under his rule and his reign. Yet we know that it didn't stay that long, did it? Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled against God. They thought they knew better than him. This is what's known as the fall of humanity, where they disobeyed God and his good word for them. But despite the horrors of sin entering into the world and and fracturing it ever since, what did God do? He gave them a promise. A promise saying that one day I am going to send someone to crush the head of Satan, crush the head of the serpent, his lies and their effects and the sin that's been brought into the world because of him and his rebellion, I'm going to do something about it. And I'm going to do it through one of your seeds, Eve. One of your sons. So this promise was given that perfect judgment against sin was coming. An offspring was promised. Then Genesis 4 forward, we see God's people, even though they were banished from Eden, they continued to sin. Even though there was some people who were trying to understand who God is, more likely than not, they were sinning. And we see sin continue to to go down the hill like a snowball picking up speed and getting bigger and bigger. 
But even despite the sin growing in the world, what does God continue to do? He continues to preserve a promise, a promised seed. The story of Noah and the flood is a great example of that. Even though the world was full of sin, God decided to preserve one family through Noah to preserve them through the wrath of judgment that the flood was. And why Noah? Because there was a promised seed still to come. But what happened after the flood? Humanity continued to sin. We see that at the Tower of Babel. So what did God do? He confused the languages of the people, and he dispersed them throughout all of the earth. But yet, at the end of Genesis 11, we see this genealogy. This genealogy of this family in which God was going to work through. And so Genesis 11 ends with highlighting the family of Abram. Connecting that from Adam to Abram, God was still going to preserve his promise to bring about a promised son. So that's a quick recap of Genesis 1 through 11. And that's where we find ourselves starting in Genesis 12. But let me go ahead and just pray for us. I'd ask that you pray for me, and then I'll read those first nine verses. Well, Father, as we are about to begin your word, I just I want to be reminded in front of you, in front of your throne, that I am completely dependent on you. I'm dependent on, in the same way that every single one in this room is dependent on you. That, Lord, we need you. We need you to rightly understand your word. We need you to illuminate the text for us to, to see you for who you are, to see the promises that you make here, but also the promises kept. So, Lord, we ask that you would do that. We also pray for our kiddos next door as they're learning about this promised seed, this family in which you're going to work through, that this family, this seed, that ultimately that we would have some role in, not because of us, but because of you. That's where we just submit all of our time in your good and gracious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Let me go ahead and just read those first nine verses. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions they had gathered, and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham, or Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. Church thus ends the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word. Thanks be to God. All right, quick disclaimer before I actually get into the text. 
and I've already done this. I will undoubtedly refer to Abraham and Abram synonymously. I am fully aware that Abram's name does not get changed to Abraham until later on, Genesis 17. But I'm just going to be just honest with you guys. I'm going to say Abraham and speaking about Abram here. Especially when I'm looking at these New Testament texts that, that highlight are looking back at this passage and they use the name Abraham. I'm just going to say it. So I ask that you give me grace. I know for you people who are OCD about this, right? It's Abram. It's not Abraham yet. I get it. I get it. You're right. I'm just going to ask you to give me grace, okay? I'm going to try to stick to Abram, but I might say Abraham. Give me grace. All right. Now, if you are a note taker, here's where I want to go with today's sermon. I want to look at the call of Abram. It's going to be point number one. The call of Abram. Point number two is the promise of Abram. The promise of Abram. And then lastly, we're going to look at the promise fulfillment of Abram. So the call, the promise, the promise fulfillment. But let's go ahead and start with the call of Abram. Now, if you have your Bibles open still, at the end of chapter 11, Genesis records a family line of Shem all the way to Abram. So the story of Moses, as I've mentioned earlier, has been building upon this lineages of God's promise that he gave to Adam and Eve and has been slowly being traced through time, through history, and we just find ourselves now narrowing in on one particular family. And starting in verse 1, we see that the Lord came to Abram and spoke to him. And what did he say? He said, go from your country. And your kindred, and your father's house, to the land that I will show you. Now, this is pretty remarkable. Because why did God choose Abram? Right? Why did he choose this man and not one of the other generations? Why did he choose him, this family line and not the others? Out of all the people, why Abram? Well, there isn't a reason given to why Abram. Truthfully. In fact, it was despite Abram, we'll see throughout the rest of Scripture. And here's where we see an important theological concept known as unconditional election. Unconditional election that God has chosen to reveal himself to particular people. And the reason why belongs to God and God alone. We don't know. We're not given a reason which I know can be very scandalous. And people really don't like to think about unconditional election. And I, I, I agree with you. It is scandalous. But why is it scandalous? Not that God chose Abram, but that God chooses anybody. That's the scandalous part. Over in the book of Joshua, you don't have to turn there. But Joshua chapter 24 actually gives some insight into Abram before this calling. And it says that Abram was a worshiper, but it says that he was a worshiper of other gods. He was a a pagan, if you will. Someone who did not worship the one and true God, but worshiped these little g false gods, what we call idolatry, if you remember, if we look back at Acts 17. So why did God choose Abram? Was it because he was worshiping him? Nope. Was it because Abram had, was this good and righteous person in and of himself? 
Nope, text doesn't say that. Is it because God just had to have Abram on his team? This guy had his life together. This guy knew what was going on. He's the one that I can use to bring about the promised seed. No. We'll get into this next week. Abram goes very quickly downhill, even with this calling of God, and the way that he treats his wife. Don't read it. Wait till next week, okay? So despite his sin, and here's the point why I bring this up, despite his sin, despite his history, despite his family dynamics, God decided to intervene in his life and completely change it forever. Abram was declared good and righteous, not because of him, but because of the God who chose him is. And notice that the call then of Abram was what? It was to leave his country, to leave everything essentially. Everything that his heart would be tempted to find identity in, he was called to leave his country, his family, his possessions. In church, this is what God does. This is what he does. When he reveals himself to you, God doesn't just want some of your worship or a part of your life. He's like, I just want some Sunday morning a little bit. He goes, no, I want it all. I want your totality of who you are to be a worshiper of me. I don't want you to to say, I'll give you 90% of my life, Lord, but I'm going to just hold on to this little corner because I'm not ready to give this to you. No, Abraham's call was for his whole life. To now be reared to the worship of the one and true God. And in this unique calling of Abram, what was the demonstration of that faith, that new identity that he had in him? It was to go. It was to leave and to follow God to an unknown place. God doesn't tell Abram where he's going. He doesn't give him some you know, snippets into what it's going to be like. All he says to Abram is, I want you to go to this land that I will show you because I'm going to lead you there. And so what, do we, what can we glean from that? It means that God is going to be there. He is going to lead him. God is not going to abandon him. Abandon him. He never abandons his people. And so Abram goes because he wants to go where God is going. And you know, you know just recently, and I've told some of you this, my discipleship group, we've been reading through the book of Revelation. And there is this, this description of Christians in the book of Revelation that John gives that I never quite noticed before. And it's Revelation 14.4. And John is describing Christians, and he describes them as, these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And it just stuck out to me. Because who's the Lamb of Revelation? The Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so what John is saying, I think, is what all of Scripture is saying. The story of humanity, the story of redemption is sinners, unworthy sinners following God wherever he goes, not because of themselves, but because of him. But it wasn't just a calling that Abraham received here. See, I did it. I already said Abraham. Sorry. Probably have done it before. It wasn't just a calling which Abram received. It was also promises here. That's point number two. Abraham received these promises. So not only did God reveal himself 
unconditionally, but he also gave grace, things to Abram that he did not deserve. And what we see in verses 2 and 3 is actually seven promises given to Abram. Let me read them to you. If you were to break these down, and you could probably do them differently, but here's the seven that I think accurately represent verses 2 and 3. One, promises that I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a great nation. Two, I will bless you. Three, I will make your name great. Four, you will be a blessing to many. Five, I will bless those who bless you. Six, I will curse those who curse you. And seven, in you all the family of the earth shall be blessed. So a great nation, I'll bless you, I'll make your name great. You will be a blessing to many. Bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now that's a lot of blessing. It's a lot of blessing. Now if you've been around church for any amount of time, you've probably heard that word, blessed, or be blessed. Now what does it mean? What does it actually mean to have blessing? Well, in a biblical sense, and specifically here in the Old Testament... To be blessed is have circumstantial or spiritual prosperity. And both of these would be the case with Abram in the years to come. But there's also a blessing that I think is beyond the physical that God is talking to Abram about. And I think it's the same blessing, if I can call it that, that that God offers every single one of us in this room today. And that's the blessing of actually being able to receive and hear the good news or the gospel. That we have that, that blessing to be able to hear and receive the gospel. The gospel. Now I know what maybe some of you are thinking. Like, hey Luke, there's nothing in this text that says that Abram heard the gospel here. Where are you getting that from? Well, remember, when I said that we read Genesis from a Christian lens, we can actually let the New Testament commentary on this passage inform us of some things that maybe were hidden but are now revealed. So if you have a full Bible, go ahead and turn to Galatians 3.8. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. Galatians 3.8. It's where Paul actually gives his comments on this passage in the New Testament. This is what he says. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So in this moment in Genesis 12, we're actually told by Paul that in this moment, God was actually preaching the gospel to Abram. He was telling him about what he was doing It was a declaration of the gospel that was given to Abram. Now, does this mean that Abram received all the details of the gospel which we have today? That Jesus would be the promised son? That that son would go to the cross and atone for sinners like you and I? That God himself would die in the place for sinners? That Jesus then would be resurrected from the grave, confirming that death on the cross was full payment for the wrath of God? I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. But what I do believe is that whatever God told Abram, the good news in which Abram received here was sufficient for his salvation. 
that in the text we'll later on, we'll look at this in the weeks to come, Abram believed God, and it says it was accounted to him as righteous. In fact, let's go ahead and look at that. It's in Romans, Romans 4.3, where Paul once again says, For what does this scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So in the same way that we are made right with God by believing in the person and work of Christ, his atonement for us, we believe God and what he did on the cross counted for us. That's how we are saved. It's by believing God. Abram was also received that same good news. He was able to believe God and his righteousness was attributed to him, was given to him, imputed to him church, this is really cool stuff. I don't know if you think it's cool. I think it's pretty cool. That it's not as if saints of the Old Testament were saved one way, and then us today, we're saved another way. God has always had one plan of redemption, and that is by believing in him, in his goodness, and his gospel. That's pretty neat. So Abram, by grace, he had been saved. Church, you, today, Christian, by grace, you have been saved by believing in the gospel. Now, if we go back to Genesis 12 and the promises, those other promises that we, I looked at, I'm not going to spend too much time on them today because ultimately what we are seeing in those first couple of verses of Genesis 12 will later become a, a, a more detailed understanding of, of what's known as the Abrahamic Covenant in which God has this formal covenant with Abram. But here's what I want to point out, is that the promise of an offspring and the promise of land, in which we see here, will be giant themes throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, highlighting the promised offspring and the promised land. Both of those are going to be really important. But we will see more of those in the Abrahamic covenant in the weeks to come. But let's talk about the original audience. Remember who Moses was writing to, right? These, these former Egyptian slaves, this nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness. How would they have received this information? Well, I think it would have been really enlightening to them. Because for the first time, they were learning why they were a nation in the first place. Why are we set apart? Why are we part of this this unique calling of God, and why are we headed to a specific land? Well, it's because that land had been given to your great father, Abram. And it's a land in which he is driving you back towards because he is good and righteous. So they are learning that God has always been on the move. That he has never left them nor forsake them. And that he has given them unique promises in which they can hold on to saying, because of God and God alone, I will follow you wherever you go. But if we return to our text in Genesis 12, when we see that Abram and his family and right, his nephew and a whole bunch of others, they get to this land. This land in which God leads them to. It's the land of Canaan. Now, what does Abram do when he gets there? Well, a couple of times it says that he built altars. 
He worshipped God. He responded to this new identity, to this gift of grace in which he had received. And the only thing that he seemed appropriate to do was worship. Was worship. And so he built these altars. And if you jump down to verse 7, you'll see that then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. Previous times it just said the Lord said. Now, appeared, this may be a possible, what's known as a theophany or a Christophany, where you actually have the, the incarnation of Jesus before the New Testament. That maybe Abram, in this moment, was able to, to see God. Now, that may or may not be the case. We're not told. But what we do see is that when Abram got to this place in which God had provided for him, he worshipped. It's the only way to respond to what God does in your life, is worship. But we need to point out two problems, though, that Abram was probably thinking about when he entered the land. And maybe he'd been thinking about this for a long time on the journey. The first problem was when he got to the land, was it empty? No. It said it was actually occupied by these cursed people known as the Canaanites. That's a problem. Like this land that I'm supposed to have, the land that you said that you're giving me, uh, God, there's already people here. What do I do? So that's a problem. But I think the bigger problem, and something that Abram was probably thinking about, is this promise of a great nation that was going to come out of his family line. Now, what was the problem? Well, if you paid close attention back in Genesis 11, uh, Moses pointed out that Abram's wife, Sarai, was barren. She couldn't have kids. So how in the world, then, am I going to have this nation of people if I can't have a son? How is this going to work out? Both of those are really big problems in which Abram is thinking about in this moment. So if we zoom out, so God has then intentionally brought Abram to a place in a circumstance that he feels would be absolutely defeating if Abram was only trusting in and of himself. Maybe Abram was asking, why in the world am I here? God, didn't you know about all these other variables that are going on? Or are you sure you got the right person? Is this, are you sure that this is where you wanted me to be? Right here, right now. Is this really the plan, Lord? Is this really the plan that you have for my life? You ever been there? I have. So does God give you more than you can handle? Yes, he does, in and of yourself. But is it more than he can handle? Nope. See, God will always place you in a circumstance, and often does this, where in and of yourself, you can't, it's not going to go well. You can't rely on yourself. You have to rely on the one who's bigger than the situation. And that's God and God alone. Our job is to follow him and trust him in the process. Now, I want to jump ahead to that last promise that Abram was given for the remainder of our time. And that's the promise that all the families of the earth will be blessed by Abram's offspring. Now, there was an initial fulfillment of this promise. We will see later on that Abram was able to have a son 
Isaac. He was able to have a son. And we can see later on than that, that one of Isaac's generational sons, Joseph, was able to actually be a part of saving the world from this, this giant famine that took place. So there's an initial fulfillment of everything which God said here. But the New Testament says that there's a greater fulfillment of this promised offspring. And so once again, I want to turn to Galatians 3. In the midst where Paul is talking about this. Galatians 3.16, it says, Now the promise, promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. Church, do you see it? Ultimately, what God was doing with Abram as he was creating the very ways in which he would bring about the ultimate promised son, Jesus. What Abram was doing was getting in line with this greater seed that was first introduced back in Genesis 3, that promised seed of the gospel. So God has made promises, and God has kept promises. Even if you, if you look at the very beginning of Matthew, and we won't go there today, if you look at the very beginning of Matthew, Matthew actually begins his gospel by tracing the family line from Abraham to who? To Jesus. Highlighting that this has always been God's plan of redemption. is through one person to bring about the restoration and redemption of everything. And so it's only through Christ and church that we're actually ultimately blessed. Because if you believe in him, the scriptures say that you're in him, that your life is hidden in him, that your life has been paid for by him on the cross, that you are adopted to him, that you belong to him. And so you are blessed in a way that your soul desperately needed, more than physical wealth or, or physical health, but in a way to be made right with God, that your sins that create this great chasm have been forgiven and paid for in Jesus. When in and of yourself, you couldn't do it. If I return to Galatians 3 again, in verse 29, it says, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So church, what we're reading in Genesis 12, that promise given nearly 4,000 years ago, has led to this inheritance in which we have now in Jesus. That's why Genesis is a, a Christian book. That's why we read it with Christian lens. And God has been faithful to bring about that blessing to us. Now, hear me clearly on this. I'm not saying that if you believe in Jesus that you will have physical health or you know, physical well-being or that you will prosper financially or even you know, physically with the health of your body. I'm not saying that at all. Because you likely won't. But the health and the wealth and that prosperity blessing that does await you is going to be found in the new heavens and new earth. The ultimate fulfillment of these promises. And those promises will be experienced by every single person who is in Christ. Every single Christian who has placed their faith and trust in him. 
I think that's why in him, then, we're, we're called to go where as Christians? To the ends of the earth. Because the blessing is for all the families of the earth. See, Christianity is not some moral hobby horse in which the world wants to paint it. But rather, it's the story of redemption. It's the story of God working through broken people, sinners who had no right to be a part of God's eternal plan. But yet, he is working in their lives, calling them to himself so that they can play a role in simply exalting the only one who's worthy of being exalted. That's really good news. I think texts like this, church, I hope it does for you as it does for me, it bolsters my faith. It reminds me that I'm, there's so much that God is doing and has been doing since the creation of the world. That, that means I can trust him with whatever's going on in my life. God has been working through circumstances and details that are far greater than my imagination, but yet he is working them according to his perfect plan. And so I can trust him no matter what. So what do we do with this information then? What do we do? How do we apply it, if you will? Well, I think we follow in the footsteps of Abram. That when he realized the promises, when he realized what God is doing, who God is, he responded in worship. And that's what we get to do, is simply get to worship. Now, we don't have to build altars anymore. Right? We, we understand that God is omnipresent, that he's everywhere. But I think, in principle, let's worship him right where we're at. Let's trust him right where we're at. Even if it feels like it's impossible at that moment, or it feels like there's things going on in our lives, they're like, I don't know how, Lord, you are actually going to fulfill your promise. We could say, but I trust you, and I'm going to worship you right here and right now. And, I'm not, and God's not waiting for us to clean up our lives. He's not waiting for you to get things right before he calls you to worship him. Remember, Abram was this pagan idolater. He didn't have a religious resume that was impressive to anybody when God called him. And same with us. God's not waiting for you to clean up your act. He's not waiting for you to present yourself as some kind of good, religious, moral person before you can actually worship him. Jesus said, I came for the sick. I came for those who needed me. And so church, let's be a people who needs him and are honest about that. And by the way, if you're, if you're not a Christian today, or maybe you're just not quite sure where you stand, one is, I hope you feel like this is somewhere you can always come and investigate the claims of Jesus. No one is going to press you to believe anything. But I do think that it's worthy to know that you're not here by accident. In the same way that Abram was not where he was at by accident, or part of the family that he was at by accident. It's always been a part of God's good eternal plan. And not one person who is his slips out of his fingers. So if you're here, the call to Abram is the call to all of us. And that is to believe him. Believe God. Believe who he is. Trust him. Turn from that false worship. Turn to him. But no matter where you find yourself, and this goes for all of us, no matter where we find ourselves today, let's respond in worship. Let's respond that the mystery of salvation, the mystery of this promise has been revealed to us. And we get to worship God in ways that Abram wasn't 
because he wasn't privy to some of the information that we get today. That mystery, we get to say, that was about Christ. That was pointing to him. And so let's do that now. All right, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll respond. Well, Father, as we just end our time in your word, I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful that, that you are a God of promises. But God, you are the promise keeper. Promises made and promises kept by you.